today on Cinema Oblivia, we're all about the man, it's Michael Mann, and the Cox, Brian Cox. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cinema Oblivia, your podcast for discussions on movies that are forgotten, under-remembered, under-watched, under-exposed, or otherwise under-discussed. I am once again your host, James Eldred. Who do I have joining me today for the, I believe, second appearance? This is uh, my returning appearance. Uh, this is Brian Ashcraft. I'm a writer uh, based in Japan, and I'm here to talk about Michael Mann. Yes, you're a big man fan. I'm a man fan. I I can make that joke, so it's okay. Yeah, we're talking about, speaking of man, we're talking about Manhunter, right. which is Michael Mann's, what, third film? Right. You chose this one. Why are you a big fan of this man, Hunter? I am a fan of this movie because I feel like this is the picture that really codified all the Michael Mannisms and, and really <laughs> kind of like, uh, showed that that uh, you know Thief wasn't kind of a stylistic, you know, one-off. That this is that this is uh, this is a man who 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 has a certain style and a certain cadence and a certain kind of uh, I don't know. It's like uh, you know certain kind of psychological themes that appear throughout his work, and you really kind of see it really starting to come into its own. Uh, with this picture. So that's why I wanted to talk about Manhunter. Yeah, you, you really see his Michael Mannerisms. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll events, eventually, I will stop making the Mike, the man jokes, but it's it's an easy last name. Yeah, this is we're going to talk about Michael Mann a lot, I imagine, in this episode. Like we said, this is his third film, and his first was Thief, which we, all, we, we were kind of going back and forth between this and Thief, and Thief is also an amazing movie. Truly. And... And his second is The Keep, which is not an amazing movie. Have you ever seen The Keep? I've, never seen, I've just heard bad things about it. I've, it was hard to find forever, and it still ain't easy, but it was on Netflix. Like, God, I saw it in America, so like eight or nine years ago. And we sat down and watched it. And, I, you know, I've seen worse movies, like, because that's who I am. Good. But it is, <laughs> but, but it is bad. Really? It is it is a bad movie, and I I just feel like it's never been released because nobody wants to bother. Right? Yeah. You know, you'll it comes out and it's kind of dogged and it sounds weird, and then people come back to reappraise it. I just just heard nothing but kind of awful things about it. So it's a it's a Nazi ghost story. The only good thing about it is the soundtrack by Tangerine Dream, which was unreleased really forever until last year. So. Like even then, the only good thing about the movie was hard to find. <laughs> but let's not talk about that terrible movie. We're talking about Manhunter, which is the first, technically the first Hannibal Lecter film based on the book Red Dragon. Have you read the book? Yes, I have. I have. No, I have not read the book. I'm not a big 
fiction reader. Do you enjoy the book too? I read the book about maybe about 16 years ago. And all I okay. all I remember about the book was that it was really creepy and that I enjoyed it. <laughs> and beyond that, nothing. I mean, there's a, a kind of a few descriptions, a few turn of phrases that kind of rattle around in my brain still. But um, yeah, I, I can't, you know, recite it, you know, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, verse, you know, uh, worded verse. So, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a movie. It was a book that I remember liking. Uh, and when I was, went back to watch Manhunter kind of the s- stuff in Manhunter that kind of, I felt like, I don't really like this part. Is this in the book? There were kind of <laughs> several moments like that, uh, when I was watching the movie. And I think that some of that stuff obviously was still in the book, but, it is weird. It's it's Thomas Harris's second book, and he's only written six books. Four of them are Hannibal books. Right. One is Black Sunday, which was also made into a movie, and another one is a movie, a book called Kari Mora, which I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. So five of his six books are movies. <laughs> That's a good batting average. Yeah, I mean, but and yeah, and 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 three of them are good. So. I mean, people like, I haven't seen Black Sunday. People like it. I haven't seen Hannibal Rising. Nobody likes that. And Hannibal is not good either. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, I'll go ahead and get this kind of confession out of the way. Uh, this is uh-huh. the only Hannibal Lecter movie I've seen. Really? Yeah, and I've seen, wow. I've seen, I'm pretty sure as a kid, I saw chunks of Silence of the Lambs at a friend's house, but I've never seen it from A to Z. I've never sat down and watched the entire picture. Chunks is a good word to use when describing that movie because yeah, you know right. cannibalism, <laughs> right. But, yeah. right? But uh, I, I haven't, I haven't kind of sat down and watched the whole thing, any of any of the ones besides this. But at the same time, the weird thing about Hannibal Lecter as a character is that even if you never seen uh, a Hannibal Lecter movie, you know who Hannibal Lecter is, and you, you know about Anthony Hopkins' performance. It's kind of like a you know Bela Lugosi and Dracula. You don't have to see a a Dracula movie to know kind of what's going on here. And I think that's the remarkable thing about it, but I haven't sat down and watched it from start to finish. I can't really comment about, you know, Cox versus Hopkins or how it uh, kind of fits in comparison to the Hannibal, like other Hannibal Lecter movies. And to be honest, it doesn't really interest me at all. Like I'm just, I'm I'm here for, I'm here for my man. And so I'm, uh, You, you you approach this film as an aficionado of Michael Mann, not as a Hannibal Lecter fan or Thomas Harris fan. Correct. I'm. I, it's just. Okay. It's just within kind of the context of Michael Mann, and I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that Michael Mann views it the same way. He does not. He's probably zero interest about, uh, you know, kind of uh, any sort of like larger Hannibal Lecter universe at all. I think he's just probably seeing how it kind of sits within his own fil- filmography. Yeah, and I because he I don't think he even was approached to do Silence of the Lambs, and it, it, this film is so drenched in Michael mannerisms, as we said, <laughs> that it, it is to a lot of people. Like, I remember my dad. My dad like loved this movie, and he he also loved Michael Mann. Uh-huh. So you know, he loved uh, Miami Vice. He fucking loved Crime Story, right? Like, I think my dad had tapes, like home tapes of that until it was on DVD, which was a, a lesser known Michael Mann TV show with Dennis Farina. Right. And when we saw Heat in the theater mm-hmm. opening night, right. 
my dad realized halfway through it was a remake of L.A. Takedown. That's like how hardcore my dad was on Michael Mann. L.A. Takedown was a TV movie that nobody saw. Yeah. So he was way into his work. And I remember seeing, we saw Last of the Mohicans opening day, Mm -hmm. you know, on a 70 millimeter screen, like a giant screen, which is the, like the only way to watch that movie. (laughs) And so like my dad was all over, all over this man. Uh, What, what, what do you, what, why, why are you uh, an aficionado of Michael Mann so, so heavily? Uh, So I guess uh, about, you know, Michael Mann specifically, I think that one thing is that his movies just look fantastic. You know, I mean, that's kind of, Oh God. Yes. I mean, and and it's not just that the way that they're shot, the camera setups, the production design on all of them is fantastic. Um, I mean, they just look really, really nice. They're incredibly, uh, I'm not like a super macho guy, but his movies are incredibly (laughs) like, you know, alpha male, uh, you know, uh, just, just, you have just like, uh, just masculinity, just, just kind of just pumping through all of his films, which, uh, you know, I think is, is really interesting. He makes unabashedly masculine movies and then and TV shows and TV, TV shows, shows yeah. and TV shows. Yeah. And when you see kind of like, it, it's, you know, when you see one of his kind of really signature films and then you watch another one, you're like, Oh, well the same guy made it, you know, there's these kind of, uh, <laughs> really just kind of these recurring themes, these characters who are uh, inc- incredibly talented at their job, who don't don't really have respect for people who are poor at what they do, who are unable to communicate very well. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Like they can't talk at all. I mean, they can talk, but they just can't really say what's going on. So his movies always feel like, like out of all the, su- I'm not a huge superhero guy, but like kind of out of all the superheroes that I like, I really like Batman and I always feel that his movies have kind of like a Batman esque uh, um, kind of, you know, brooding kind of uh, undertone to them, which makes them really interesting. I also like specifically the thing I like about Manhunter and the thing I think that really turned me off about kind of the other uh, Hannibal Lecter movies is that when I saw the, you know, the clips of, even as a kid, when I saw the kind of the clips of the Jonathan Demi movie, it was like, wow, this is really brown you know, lots of brown and murky and muddy. And I don't like that. I like movies that tend to to have more color and, uh, you know, primary colors I really respond to, nice whites. And so his movies always kind of just visually, just from looking at it and being visually pleased, uh, his movies always do a really good job of doing that. Well, when he was making Miami Vice, there was a, a rule on the set that said no earth tones. There you go. I mean, no red. Yeah, no reds and browns. I do feel like almost Demi's style is a reaction to the 80s, which makes sense at the time. You know, kind of purposely moving away from bright and flashy. Because Sounds of the Lambs is a completely different film than this. They, 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 share, they share a kernel. The kernel is that an FBI agent is looking for a serial killer, mm-hmm. and they occasionally call on Hannibal Lecter to help them. Right. Now, in Manhunter... The FBI agent, who's played by William Peterson, and we'll get to that in a minute, right. he is the person who captured Hannibal in the first place. Mm-hmm. And to a certain hit, their relationship is entirely different than the one of Hannibal and Clarice in Silence of the Lambs. In Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal really respects Clarice, and he 
finds her kind of interesting and at one when he escapes he's he he flat out he calls her to tell her he will not hurt her because the world is a more interesting place of her in it mm-hmm. that is not his relationship with uh will graham no no he, no he does not like will graham <laughs> because he cannot understand how will caught him well he, there's uh, a great exchange of that he said you know he, yes he says, best line in the movie he says like you know, you had certain disadvantages, and then Lecter says, what? And then Graham says, you're insane, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, you're insane, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, Graham, Graham goes to see him because, well, Peter, yeah, Graham goes to see him because there's a, there's a serial killer out who nicknamed the Tooth Fairy because Thomas Harris loves to do that, to do that with a serial killer. Because mm-hmm. there's Hannibal the Cannibal, the Tooth Fairy, and Buffalo Bill, and the Tooth Fairy bites his victims, and he kills entire families. And he does it every full moon. And so the FBI is desperate to catch him before he kills again. And they, Will Graham was the profiler who caught Hannibal. And the experience of being around Hannibal drove him temporarily crazy and had to go to therapy. And he's retired, but they force him back in to do this. And then he goes to see Hannibal really to get the, as they say, get the, get the scent back. Right, right. And uh, Hannibal's played by Brian Cox who is great in this movie. I love Brian Cox. Yeah, big fan. The same, I, I love I love men and I love Cox. And I'm sorry, it's a, it's a late. Right. Uh, but Brian Cox is, I believe, an underrated actor. I don't know. He's got a pretty impressive, like, theatrical and film career. I think it's, it, it's like, a, he, he's, he's one of those kind of revered uh, stage actors that never, yes. that never quite, receive has never quite received the same kind of mainstream notoriety or adulation that some other of his peers have but i mean he's just i mean he's absolutely uh astounding in this movie and i think that the the point that you made here about the the kind of the the ill feelings that he has towards uh graham makes all of the scenes where they're together that much more interesting and then some of the things that he does in the movie that much more terrifying and uh yeah it's just really just that kind of dynamic is is what really powers along this this movie for me i think it's just fascinating i wanted to ask you a question we're talking about the tooth, the uh-huh. tooth fairy uh and I, I i don't have the exact dates in my head and i actually kind of forgot it, the, is the character based on richard ramirez is there some sort of like the, so they based him on a few people when he was researching the movie, Michael Mann actually spoke to investigators who caught Ramirez. Okay. But I don't believe he's explicitly based on one person. Because when was Ramirez was in 19... When, when the murders were in... Uh, right before this. So the, the book came out before this. Okay, so... The book came out before Ramirez. The Ramirez happened between the book and the movie. Okay, okay. So yeah, I was just yeah. wondering about the, the kind of the timeline on that. Because... It's one of those things where just the the teeth stuff in the movie is just so kind of creepy and and, and, and effective. A lot of the stuff that's I think creepy is due to the uh, actor who plays the bad guy. The killer in this, Francis Dollarhide, is played by Tom Noonan, who 
is a this to quote him, he says, I've done a bunch of weirdo parts. I'm sort of weird, but I'm not that bad. And you know, <laughs> I don't know. I he's creepy. He's I hate to play the stereotypes because he's six foot five. I'm six foot six, so I'm taller. This this one I say. Okay. And uh he's a creepy dude. He's he's just you know, he's he's lanky. Right. And he was the Frankenstein's monster in Monster Squad. Okay. Uh, and he was in Robocop 2, and he's one of the killers in Last Action Hero. He plays villains a lot. Right, right. <laughs> you know, because he's kind of good at it. And I think this movie shows remarkable restraint both with Hannibal and him, because Hannibal's only in this film for 10 minutes. And Dollar Hyde, who is the villain of the film, doesn't show up until the hour mark. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre, like kind of the pacing. Of the the thing that I when I went back and watched the movie, I remember all of the stuff with him uh, acutely. I remember that very vividly. I remember all the stuff, mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, Brian Cox very clearly as well. All of the stuff with Joan Allen, I didn't remember. <laughs> like I remember, I, th- I think I saw this when I was like thirteen or something like that. I don't remember having this kind of like. Uh, distaste for it, but I remember going back and watching it and saying, like, all this stuff with Joan Allen, I mean, this needed to have been chopped down, like, to a fine, you know, to a fine point, because there's just so much just kind of fluff on it, and it's just like, oh my god, we get it, yeah, he's he's got a girlfriend, and she can't see him, he's a killer, and there's just these scenes that just drag and drag and drag and drag. So, that's interesting, because, like, so Joan Allen plays Reba McClain, who is a co-worker of Dalla Hyde, who they become romantically involved. And I love her character. I think she's an interesting character. The character's blind. Right. And Joan Allen, as a recurring theme in this, everybody who's in this movie researched their roles to a comical extent. <laughs> Joan Allen, it's almost like Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. Like, Joan Allen met with blind people and practiced being blindfolded. Right. To kind of act more convincingly convincingly blind. And she does a good job. I think she's good in the role. I like those parts because it almost makes you feel sympathetic for him. It and does, but I feel that the interesting the interesting part is like the idea of like when I when I first watched it, I was like, well if if they stay together, is it gonna quit being a serial killer? <laughs> no. Like <laughs> no, no, of course not. But it's it's a, but that it makes you wonder like that reminds me almost of BTK who the serial killer mm-hmm. who got married and well, was married and had a regular life and quit being a serial killer for a long time. <laughs> right. I guess, you know, my, my kind of, and that, but that they, they didn't know that when they made it, that, that, that didn't happen in the public eye when they made this movie. So they, that, that's, that's a, a coincidence, but I like those scenes. I think it, it gives him more, it makes him more of a character. I, the, the kind of the, I, I just remember the one that I just was like, Oh God, I, it was like, um, first of all, I want to say that the scenes with them are some of the like schmaltziest scenes you'll ever see in any Michael Mann movie. Like Michael Mann, I don't think since then has done anything c- kind of to that extent uh, of the well, of that's really because there's a scene like he he wakes up in the morning, uh, you know the the toothpaste circular wakes up in the morning. Joan Allen is not there, but she's like standing out on a pier, and he goes and walks down to the pier, and they, and it's just like oh god, I mean it's just. The scenes that I thought were really effective was when he was trying to court her, and then once he mm-hmm. courted her, he started being mean to her. 
Yeah, that is good. That is a good point. And I think that that Tyga scene is crazy. That, that's like one of the most interesting scenes of, you know, in any Michael Mann movie. I thought that was fantastic. But it just it, it yeah. felt like some of them were a bit too, uh, uh, like I said, just kind of a, they just went on a bit too long. And like, I don't know, they it felt like it could have been tightened up. But the, what I do like about that relationship is what I said is he gets her. And once he gets her, then he's like, he has control over him. And that character is all about control and, and, mm-hmm. and being dominant and stuff like that. And so I thought that once they kind of got to that point, we could have kind of moved on to other stuff. But I don't know. Yeah, I I think yeah you haven't seen Red Dragon and I I Red Dragon's a terrible movie. Um, Red Dragon. So people who don't know, this is like I said, this is based on a book called Red Dragon. When they were making the movie, they changed the name, and there's a conflicting reasons why. The the most uh, either because it was it sounded like a kung fu movie, yes, or because there was another movie called Year of the Dragon that just came out. So the, they changed the name, yeah, the Mickey Work uh, movie. Mickey yeah. Work Michael Tamino movie, yeah. yes. That that I saw like when I was 10 because my dad. Um Yeah. And yeah. So uh when they so then years later, after Silence of the Lambs, they they re- they made Red Dragon as Red Dragon. And that star that's it, that is a deliberate prequel to Silence of the Lambs, the same cast, with Ed Norton playing the main character, but Anthony Hopkins is back, the guy who plays the doctor in the Mental Asylum's back. Barney's back. All these characters are back, and it is a much more faithful adaptation of the book. So I think that's the only interesting part about it. So like the scenes that you don't like, mm-hmm. I think they're explained better in Red Dragon the movie. Mm-hmm. But they are. It's not as good a movie because the movie doesn't look as good or have a good feel or good style to it. So it's Red Dragon. It feels like a TV movie. Okay, and so like in in Red Dragon, you see that he freaks out when she, when he wakes up in bed and she's not there. He freaks out because there's stuff in the house that would implicate him as a serial killer. Oh, okay, I get it. And he's worried she'll find it. Right. Also, so that's that's a good addition. I like that part. The bad addition is when she explicitly says out loud that he has a boner <laughs> when he is watching the videos of the next family he's going to kill. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, like that's the kind of thing that I think in a book with a third person voice you can say, right. you know, in a, in a, in its own way. Right. But when she just g- grabs his dick and says, oh, you are ready. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's like, right. I mean, I, I get, yo, Reba, calm down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. And uh, so I think, but that's one of the many, many things. I mean, I'll be saying a lot about the comparisons because I think a lot a lot of people have seen Red Dragon mm. because that was a bigger movie, box office-wise. And, mm-hmm. you know, but it just, it doesn't work like Manhunter. And I think because of Michael Mann. Right. Because of the the... the cast the, the the everything about it works better in manhunter one interesting thing though is that both films share the same cinematographer dante spinati yes two-time oscar nominee who did insider with michael mann which i have not seen oh i have and, oh I've, uh, I've stuff to say about I'm, that i'm not surprised yeah. <laughs> I, I figured as yeah. much okay so ha- before is there any michael mann movie you haven't seen well i haven't seen the the keep so, but okay, but I have seen yeah. all the other ones, yeah. And I've seen yeah, okay, this, this, LA Takedown, which is uh, wow, which is a hoot to watch after after you've seen Heat, and you're like, wow, Robert De Niro really does make movies better. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> when when De Niro and Pacino are on their A game, they, they are yes. He he is such a great fucking movie. Yeah, and Spinat, you know, and there's see and the cool thing about this movie, Manhunter, is there are scenes and there are shots that you could have just you could just even like even though they're ten years apart, you could kind of edit them into heat and they would fit right in. They would not Oh yeah, this movie thematically, this and Heat, man, they are like brothers because they're both about a law enforcement agent who's who gets way too into his work yes yeah and how it affects i think he is he is much more directly about how it affects his life than this is this this is like it affects his life but there's never a conflict about does he have to do this because like he's stopping a serial killer right right so like even the wife who gets mad at him she understands that like yo Right, it's kind of important. In in heat, it's like yo, it's a fucking bank robber. Let's go to a dance. Right. <laughs> He's like, no, you know, it's like, <laughs> right. right, So yeah, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, Al Pacino screaming about saying that that he found a baby in the microwave. There's no, there's no scene like that trying to <laughs> trying to explain that to no, his wife. It's this, but but it's this will will yeah William Peterson being brooding. But, but the the same thing that's funny about both those movies is that. These the 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 stars the the main characters in these movies live in the most amazing houses. It's just like oh my god! It's like they live in the same. Oh. They have the same real estate agent or the same architect or something, which is uh, I mean, and there's just shots where it's like in the room and it's blue. That I mean, you could just flip from heat to to Manhunter. I mean, it would and and the way this movie uses horizon, yeah, like looking in the distance and seeing a horizon, the the blue lighting in a lot of the scenes. And like the the movie is gorgeous from a cinematography and lighting and directing standpoint. But also like this movie I think is edited in a really great way. And there's a sequence in the film where um Graham, the FBI agent, is confronted by this guy named Leeds mm-hmm. who is a lounge, lounge, the the shithead tablet tablet reporter mm-hmm. and this the he um graham confronts him and throws him onto a car and the edit the cut there is perfect mm-hmm. to show the impact in a in a way and then there's a point later on where he's arguing with his boss dennis farina and he right when he turns the cat the, there's a cut just to I feel like the way the, it's edited really tight and it kind of shows how frantic he is. And it's just little things like that. When he's running away from Hannibal mm-hmm. in the, in the prison, the, 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 the editing to show how frantic and how disjointed he is in his brain, all that stuff just, Oh I, yeah. It's just, Oh God, this movie's beautiful. I, I think they, I think they used an art gallery for the prison. That they- yes. The prison's an art gallery. No prison looks that yeah, good. No, my, my, I have family who have been correction officers. They they don't look they don't work in places that look like they could be you know by the Guggenheim. No, the, uh, you were talking. We were talking about the the insider, and one thing that this actually shares with the insider, just the way it's shot, is that mm-hmm. uh, there there's kind of the easiest way to explain it is early in the movie, uh, William Peterson, who's this you know cop that captured Hannibal Lecter, is like at the beach. And then what, like Dennis Farina, like comes to get him or something. Like, yeah. And they're yeah. sitting on like a log talking And the way that a normal director would shoot. That is you'd shoot it from kind of an establishing shot, going closer and then just cross cut as they're talking like, you know, his face and kind of the back of his head. And, and the way that they shot it is so weird because 
they put the camera yeah. and it's like behind the other actor, the back of their head and then the back. Yeah. And then they're talking yes. that way. And then it's cutting that way. And it's, it's incredibly discombobulating. And he, he did that a lot in the insider as well, where it's like, he's taking basic cinema grammar. You know, you have these kind of rules of this is how you film a scene. And he's just throwing the, the, the rules out the window. And he's like, we're going to do it this way. And it's just really, really uh, interesting. And, and it's not arty and it's, it's actually pretty easy to, to watch. But if you, you know, if you, if you really kind of think about the typical way scenes are shot, Michael Mann is just totally thumbing his nose at it. And there's a bunch of scenes like that in the movie and you watch it and you're just like, wow. I mean, not only is this guy just uh, thematically really interesting and, and able to shoot really slick uh, scenes, but he's just doing all this kind of interesting stuff with cinematic grammar uh, that I think yeah. makes him so compelling as a director. There's a, there's a great scene where they, they worry that uh, the tooth fairy is going to go to uh, Graham's house. Mm-hmm. And there's just this long tracking shot through the house. Right. Like instead of, instead of like close-ups of it on noises or like frantic editing to make it look scary, it's just one long slow shot right. going through the house and you watch it and you keep expecting something to appear on the side or like, but no, it's just a long slow shot. Yeah. There's no cheap kind of jump scares or yeah. anything like that. talking kind of about like what I guess make this movie interesting. And I think that we haven't mentioned William Peterson, who is, yeah. who was on quite a run for cool movies in the eighties. And then just kind of, uh, uh, you know, well, he was offered what platoon and turned that down. And then he was offered Goodfellas, And he's like, no, nah, I don't want to work with that. I don't, you know, Scorsese, nah, I'm not going to do that. Real, I didn't know that. Apparently, I didn't yeah, know he was, that. Yeah. He, he was offered that. He was in. He was in. He was. He had a really bit. He has a, he has a bit part in Thief, like very small role. Mm-hmm. And then he is the lead in To Live and Die in L.A., which is amazing. Which <laughs> is also one of my all-time favorite movies, and also one of my all-time favorite '80s movies. And I mean '80s as this movie is '80s as fuck. Yeah. Uh, I mean the soundtracks by Wang Chung. Right. The, the, there you go. It's a great movie. And then yeah. Manhunter, mm-hmm. and then like crap. Yeah, just, I think he just turned like he was building momentum. And if he, he if he would have taken those kind of two roles, he would be considered. I mean, I think he's a great actor. He would be considered one of the greatest actors of his generation. What I wanted to ask you is, if he had uh-huh. done Goodfellas, what do you think would have been different about the way he did it and the way Leota did it? And what do you, so he was he was gonna, he was going to be Leota? I think so. That's I think he was offered the Henry. I think Henry that would have been a huge mistake, to be perfectly honest. It would have been a different movie yeah. because he's not explosive like that. Like, at least maybe he can be. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But like in the movies I've seen him in, the kind of anger and in a term and in To Live and Die in L.A., the kind of just bastardly behavior he does, uh-huh. he does it in a much more simmering, smoldering way. Right. Uh, which is kind of is kind of why it's you know kind of hot. But he uh, he um he doesn't explode like Leota. You know, Leota in Goodfellas is a for is like a force of nature almost. I think 
he's he's under he's you know we have Joe Pesci there and Joe Pesci kind of steals it whenever he's around. Mm-hmm. But Ray Liotta's terrifying in that movie too. Yeah, I I was I had been thinking about this a lot because I, like uh you know the the actual Henry Hill was did not look like Liotta. I mean he looked more like when he in the movie says you know my dad's Irish he looked more like yeah. and that's why he couldn't become a wise guy. And so Peterson would have kind of I think pushed that more explicitly. But then it actually becomes more interesting that Leota doesn't look that way. And then you really see like, oh, for this kind of world, it's really about the bloodline. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and that actually made it compelling. I had always kind of wondered, would Peterson have been able to do stuff like the like the Joe Pesci scene where he's like, you know, am I funny? Do I make you laugh? Am I yeah. Account? And uh, uh, Leota's like starts laughing so hard he's like crying, you know, and he's just like, yeah, I mean, it, it's a meme for a reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's just like <laughs> he's such a he can be such a wonderfully hammy actor at a time at times, and Peterson isn't like that at all. And he's no, and you know, Peterson found his lane later of CSI, and I, I do feel like CSI is kind of like the watered down version of this. Oh yeah, this invented like a whole subgenre of crime movies. Yeah. Because another interesting thing about Manhunter is like that you, there are no the other. There's one murder on camera, mm-hmm. I think. No two. Well, I guess Lowndes doesn't die on camera, but he's he's murdered on camera. Right. Um, there's one person shot on camera, mm-hmm. and then the bat, and at the ending, there's like the shootout and stuff. But like the the set piece murders are not on camera. Right. Uh, you just see photographs after, and that was a deliberate. They they wanted to make the investigation the focus. Right. Michael Mann said he didn't want to. This is the, this is the mid '80s. This is the height of the slasher. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to make a slasher. He didn't want to make a movie. Everyone's running to the bathroom. He said he wanted to make it artistic and classy. That was his words. Right. And by focusing on the investigation and not the murder and, and not and there's a shootout at the end, but it's not really about that. He did kind of invent this genre oh yeah yeah you know and it's even now kind of i mean the technology is obviously so has been way surpassed by by the stuff that they were doing but even when they were kind of talking about stuff or going through the procedural stuff i mean you can tell that it's advanced police technology at least for that time and that's kind of those are the big set pieces those are the big yeah, uh, 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 kind of moments instead of like you know somebody getting stabbed or things like that. Where the, there's much, there's a greater interest on that element of it, which is fascinating. And, and another cool part about that is it's not always the technology; it's just that they're, they're smart. Oh yeah, like my favorite, like the sequence in the movie where you know Hannibal is communicating with the, with the tooth fairy, mm-hmm. and the tooth fairy sends him a letter on toilet paper. Yeah, and the prison finds that out and they have like two hours to look at it before Hannibal will get, will get suspicious. Right. And everything they do, that's just smarts. Like figuring out that, oh, if you put it under a light, a, a black light, you can see this pen. Right. Like the fact that this guy knows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is the interesting thing. And um then there's the part with what was it, uh, the figuring out the code. Mm-hmm. Like there's no technology there that is smart enough to realize it's a code. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It. Oh, it's good stuff.
I would say the, you know, we've talked about several of the, the important cast members in the film, but we really haven't talked about the, the one cast member who, who really is a showstopper, who, who brought me to a sudden halt when watching this movie. And that was, of course, Chris Elliott. <laughs> the literal definition of a showstopper, I paused the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Like, what the fuck are you doing here? Chris Elliott, cabin boy. Yeah, it's like it's this. He's been in Chris Elliott has been in a Michael Mann movie. I mean, it's 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 incredible. And a James Cameron film. Man, he's like a Zelda. He's an abyss. He's like, he's like Zelda. He's an abyss. He's an abyss immediately after this. Yeah, Chris Elliott has one scene, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's barely in this. Like. He, he he and before this i looked it up before this he was in a movie called liana which is a, a john sale film so i'm sure it's fucked up to depress right and then he was in a, a star wars parody called gremloid which is apparently well liked among some people mm-hmm. and then a movie called my man adam i have no idea right. and then this and then the abyss and then i imagined letterman right right and then he just started doing like <laughs> comedy and his, his but yeah, yeah. It, it's it's like, I wonder if did at this time was he did he have designs on being a ser- I mean it's obviously I think comedians have a certain skill sets that actually lends them to serious acting so it's not surprised that he's a comedian that he wants to do serious acting but I didn't know if did, at that time I was wondering if he was really seeing himself as doing more acting and less comedy or something it's just kind of odd maybe it pays the bills oh yeah you know who who knows it is hilarious it's just one thing in common that with uh with Red Dragon, uh, in one Bill Duke has one scene in that movie. Oh, you know Bill Duke. Yeah, yeah. He shows up for one. He's in. He's in the opening credits. Like he's like eight fifth build, but he only has like five lines. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, Bill Duke, what the fuck are you doing here? And why aren't you in it more? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you're awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, Chris Elliott. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. But I guess in the other, the other, of course, we didn't talk about it was Dennis Farina, who looked, yeah, he looked about the same for about twenty five years. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, Dennis Farina. When you in the eighties, when you wanted to get a cop and you couldn't afford Harvey Keitel, you got a real cop. You, I mean, he was a cop. <laughs> you just got a cop. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, Dennis Farina was a cop. Like uh, all, all the other actors in the movie are spending a year doing all this research, and he's like, "Yeah, I already did this." You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was a Chicago cop, so. <laughs> Yo, he. This is his fourth movie. He was in Thief, mm-hmm. and he's in Code of Silence, and was it a Chuck Norris movie? And he's in a uh Jojo dance, Jojo dancer, the the Richard Pryor film. Mm. Uh, I think his I think his breakthrough role is his next film, uh, Midnight Run. Yeah, uh, yeah, that which is a goddamn great movie. But he's he's um, fantastic in this. Is I mean, he's really really yeah, he's great. Good. He's. I have a feeling he's just saying himself, playing himself. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you know when you watch later stuff that he did, like uh, what, like Get Shorty or something like that. Some of the, I guess, Leonard stuff that he did. He he. It seems like his kind of acting range had branched out or whatever. But um, yeah, he's just he's just fantastic and just you know just kind of oozes realism. Yeah, and I, I think he just got the role because he knew Michael Mann, I imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but hey, man. He's great. Sometimes, <laughs> as I was talking in another episode recently, sometimes nepotism's good, and he fits the, he fits the role perfectly. Mm. Like, the, yeah, the casting in this is great. I One thing I wanted to mention about Tom Noon, Noonan, uh, which I thought was hilarious when reading about the movie, is like, 
he almost didn't take it because Michael Mann made him wait an hour and a half to do the interview. Yeah. And he was like, well, fuck you. And then he demanded $100,000 for no reason and got it. Good for him. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, then when he was filming, he got like everybody, like this movie. I've said it before, the amount of method and research that everyone went through in this film sounds like a parody. Yeah. Like William Peterson started met with FBI investigators. Michael Mann met with FBI investigators and interviewed like talked to serial killers. Uh you know, Joan Allen pretended to be blind. Thomas Noonan, he didn't want to talk he didn't want to do serial killer research because it disturbed him too much. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want to talk to anybody. When making the movie. So he would just, he would lift weights and sit in the dark and go in his trailer and just be there in the dark. And sometimes Michael Mann would come in there with him and they would just kind of sit in the dark together. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's, that's totes normal. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, he's so, yeah, it's, everything the cast does in this, I guess Dennis Freen is the only one who didn't have to. Right, be hella method. He just lived forty years as a cop. Yeah, he, he, uh, there is one more person I want to mention, which is which is Stephen Lang because mm-hmm. he plays Freddie Lounds. Oh, Freddie Lounds is mm-hmm. the creep, the, the shithead, like National Enquirer substitute reporter, mm-hmm. and he just oozes slime. Oh yeah, and yeah. All, all those scenes are really really good. I felt like, and um, the thing that the, the 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 kind of the big scene with him, kind of the big. Oh God! Yeah. It's it's um, it's one of the most unsettling kind of scenes that I've seen in a movie. Oh, uh, not yeah. not because it's particularly violent, but uh, it, it just it, because it's maybe because it's not violent. You know, they're just kind of the way that violence kind of hangs in the air and the threat of violence. It's menacing. It is, and and I think that that's kind of one of the things that a lot of movies kind of forget. Is especially, I think, that a lot of the movies that followed, um, you know, 10 years after this movie was made, and they really just like, oh, we can, let's try to, you know, go from an X to a hard R for every movie that we do. It, it kind of loses that, you know, where, where, yeah. And it was one of the things that a lot of great directors before that that had to work under stricter kind of review codes knew that just kind of the threat of violence is often worse than the actual violence. And that scene is, Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, because he kidnapped because they the FBI makes a fake story for it, Lounds to run because they know the Tooth Fairy read it. The Tooth Fairy not happy about that. Right. Kidnaps Lounds, and that scene is just not only it's menacing, but it's also just really weird. Like he has the pantyhose over half his face for no reason because he's going to kill him anyway. Yeah, and he. His apartment has that Mars landscape, literally like a like a, a blown up painting picture of Mars in the background, mm-hmm. and it's a TV playing with a vertical hole broken, yeah. and like it's just it's just so off putting. Everything about it is like, and it's directed so coldly. Like there's no weird Dutch angles. There's no music playing. Yeah, it's just this is the reality this dude is trapped in and he just keeps saying to himself, if I see him, I'm a dead man. If I see him, I'm a dead man. And you know, guess what? He lights him on fire and throws him down in a wheelchair so, down a parking garage. So that's the thing that really there's kind of, as much as I, I, I like this movie, there are two things that really bother me. One is the Joan Allen stuff, okay. which I mentioned earlier. And then the second was this, 
So I liked everything, not like, but I was kind of riveted by every moment up to that. And then mm-hmm. when he lights him on fire and then pushes him <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a, I guess, an office chair into a parking garage, visually, that's a stunning scene. But for me, it was just like, really? Like, he's, so, really? You know, he's going to really like it just like I was trying to work out the logistics of it. So he gets the guy and then he tapes him up and he gets him downstairs in the chair and then he lights him like, I don't see that. I just don't see that possible. So, yeah, in in the in the other remake in in, in Red Dragon, the movie, Mm -hmm. and I again, I imagine the book. Mm -hmm. They explain more that Dalla Hyde lives in an old home, old nursing home. Okay. And so he has old wheelchairs and shit like that. Okay. And so that explains where he gets that. And the and the Red Dragon does point out more, hey, we know this guy has a van now. <laughs> like <laughs> of course. I don't, able to, I don't, that I, that's actually a big in, in Red Dragon, uh, that's actually a big slip up. Yeah, I don't I don't remember this from the book, but yeah, I just remember seeing that in the movie and seeing like this is kind of and I think it, I guess it was like man flipping through the book and just going like, well, that that sounds like it would look interesting. Let's do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> I guess also, yeah, it, it it's also, it looks cool, right? Yeah. I mean, the image of him flying down the parking garage in the wheelchair and then hitting the camera mm-hmm. is a striking, terrifying image. Oh, yeah. So I get why he put it in there, even if it doesn't, you know, make a... Make, make all that sense. I mean, the ending doesn't make a ton of sense either, right? right? I mean, <laughs> like, why? Why is Inagata Davida playing? Because it's cool. Right, yeah. Although, uh-huh. although he got that idea from a serial killer. Oh, he did. There was a serial killer who believed Inagata Davida what had a secret meaning. Huh. A guy named Dennis Wayne Wallace. Uh huh. So the idea of using that in that scene was from real life. And I read an, an interesting interview with one of the guys from one of the bands in the film. I think the Reds. Mm-hmm. They who's uh they said that they pointed out to Michael Mann, like they asked Michael, they, they saw a rough cut of the film and they're like, why the fuck is Inagata Navita playing? Right, right. And they were like, he's like, well, that guy likes the song, and he's like, well, you don't know that it's his song, you just hear the song playing. Uh, so then Michael Mann added the insert of him putting in the eight track, uh, so you would know right. that it's. It is the Tooth Fairy playing that song specifically, which I thought was a nice, nice little touch. Nice. The the music in this movie's awesome. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. For me, big Tangerine Dream said no vibes, but because like it sounds like Tangerine Dream. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, because Tangerine Dream did the scores to Thief and The Keep. Right. So I do wonder if he reached out to Tangerine Dream and they said no. Uh-huh. One of the composers, it's not really a score, it's just like take it music. Right. And one of the songs is by Claus Claus Schultz, who was in Tangerine Dream. Mm-hmm. Other good stuff on here. What do, what do you think of the soundtrack? The score, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I liked it. You know, it's just kind of it's it sounds like kind of like the kind of the soundtracks that we've come to expect for Michael Mann, at least his kind of like crime movies. Um so yeah, I mean, it just again, like it kind of. Uh, if you had this soundtrack and you have, if you had a two disc set and this was, you know, the first disc and then the second disc would have would have been Heat. They they would kind of complement each other in different ways. So. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, like so yeah. I think that the the sound the soundtrack's great. I mean, it's just it's just it, he's uh, he's a filmmaker that kind of understands that 
bad production design can ruin a scene. Bad acting can ruin a scene. And like bad music can kind of ruin a movie as well. And so he, yeah. he seems fairly attuned to all of those. Uh, yeah, the soundtrack has uh, some interesting selections. A lot of smaller bands no one's ever heard of. There's a band called The Reds. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of the instrumental passages. There's a band called Red Seven. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a generic song that's played over the end credits. Right. <laughs> um, produced by Mike Rutherford from Genesis. Uh, then there's uh, another band called Shriek Back, which is a guy from XTC, and they do a lot. Like the scene, the Tiger scene is a Shriek Back song. Oh, really? That's uh, interesting. Yeah. And the Dalahide sex scene. Um, uh-huh. which I, I hate saying those words together. Right. Um, both Shriek Back and the Reds. Michael Mann used the music in Miami Vice. You know? Okay. Uh, one of the songs is by Kitaro, who is a Japanese musician, new age musician, kind of like uh, Tamita. Or uh, do you know who Tamita is? No. Was- oh, well, this is like 70s synthesizer guys, like pre-Yellow Magic Orchestra. Oh, like, okay, uh, I got you. That- like new age synthesizer. Gotcha. And his song is played during the dream sequence on the plane. Uh, that's such a weird scene. That's so weird. That's a weird scene that they filmed illegally, by the way. Like they didn't have permits to film on a plane, so they just bought as many tickets as they could. So I heard that, and then I was like, <laughs> I was like thinking about that as well. It's like they're shooting on thirty-five. Thirty-five cameras are big. Like, like, yeah. Like I, I was like, really? You know, I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe, but like, and then they're. It could be a. It could. It could be a lie, but. Uh, I mean, they, you know, it's not that hard to kind of get dummy planes as a set. Yeah. But it's really not, yeah. especially in Los Angeles. You can get, That's a good point. you can get them fairly easily. So when I heard that, it's like, maybe they shot some of the out of the window stuff uh, or stuff, yeah. that kind of stuff. But I don't think that they could have like, you know, gotten on a plane and then have William Peterson lay out a bunch of like grisly murder photos as he's sleeping. <laughs> and then it's like, there's a kid. It's like, Oh, and thank goodness there's a kid next to us and we can traumatize the kid for his, for, you know, the rest of that kid's life. Yeah. Maybe it's a few of the shots. Yeah. yeah. I can see some, Want, some yeah. inserts, but like when he said, or I think there's actually, when I think about it, maybe some of the shots where you see like a flight attendant serving, or I think there's some kind of ambient kind of B rolly stuff. Maybe, uh, 35 cameras, 35 millimeters are so huge. I, you, like, you would need like a seat for the camera, you know? So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, so maybe it is just bullshit. Who knows? Yeah. Or maybe they shot stuff yeah. on Super 16. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Or maybe, but, no, it's third. It has to be third. I don't, I can't imagine Michael Mann shooting 16. Yeah. So, uh, or maybe he wants, he wants that good, that picture. You yeah. Know? Or maybe, uh, maybe I'm, you know, from, from, I'm just saying from, from what I remember of seeing 35 cam- 35 millimeter cameras are all big. Maybe they're smaller ones or I'm misremembering, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's one more musical piece I want to talk about. There's a song, like a full-on song in this called uh, Strong As I Am by a band called The Prime Movers, which you have not heard of. I have not, no. Um, <laughs> I haven't. And I, like, if it's a new wave band and I haven't heard of it, trust me, they're nobody. I have a lot of that shit. And 
it's a weird song because like I was reading about it. There's a great website called manhunter1986.com, which looks like a fan site uh-huh. from 2000 that the guys has kept updating. Cool. Um, so I recommend that site. And he interviewed one of the guys from Prime Movers, and he was like, "This song's about parental abuse." Huh. Heavy. And trying to fight that and he said that he he's happy it's in the movie he says that like that that song makes that scene but for him it's really weird weird to to hear that song in a different context because in the in the film it's when dollar hyde sees joan allen with another guy and he thinks that she's having an affair with him mm. and he's trying to overcome his urge to kill people maybe i think is what the song's saying Jeez. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it, it's I don't know. I like that. I think that scene is very divisive with critics Mm -hmm. because the soundtrack in this film is overpowering. And at that point, it is at its peak overpowering. Right. The song is telling the story of the film. Yeah. It's kind of a little too on the nose, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Which, you know, you, you don't want for, I guess when you're scoring a movie, uh, if it's too on the nose, it actually it becomes distracting. You know, it's um... yeah, yeah. But I like that scene. I like that song. I like that that song was used illegally in Abraxas Guardian of the Universe, the Jesse Ventura film. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I found this out today, and apparently the, the I think that's Jesse Ventura. Apparently, the Prime Movers found that out much later. Yeah, it's a Jesse Ventura uh, movie from '91, and that song's in the movie and. Somebody asked them once, hey, well, how'd that song get in that movie? And they're like, excuse me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's in what? And so they had they there was uh they had to contact some licensing people to get that to get that short sorted out. Well, good. <laughs> um yeah, yeah. It's kind of strange. But we're talking about how great this movie is, but that was not the opinion when it came out. No. No. It was. It did not do well. It did. I mean, no, it bombed. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like. I feel like you know the last movie that I was on here talking about the driver didn't do well when it got so. It makes. I mean, that's why I do this podcast for the most <laughs> yeah. part, right? Like either, yeah. either they bombed when they came out like these, or there's something like Smoking the Bandit, which like people don't talk about anymore. Right, right, right. You know, and this is definitely the former. This movie bombed. This movie opened uh-huh. in eighth place. It's not uh, bad. I mean, that's no, it's bad. It was beaten by ruthless people in its eighth week. Okay, okay. <laughs> Top Gun in its fourteenth week. Uh-huh. Karate Kid Part Two in its ninth week. It did outgross One Crazy Summer in its second week. Oh, that, but that's a good movie. One Crazy Summer. It got creamed. The top, <laughs> just for anyone, the, the top ten this weekend was The Fly, Armed and Dangerous, Aliens, Karate Kid Part Two, Nothing in Common, Top Gun, Ruthless People, Manhunter, One Crazy Summer, and Heartburn. You know it's funny though if you think about that top 10 and you look at it with a 2021 lens that's an amazing top 10 not not a yeah i mean not for quality i'm not saying just not quality i'm just saying you would never see movies like that in the top 10 now it just would not happen well aliens you would well, see the uh, dad and maybe maybe a karate kid movie but or that type of movie <laughs> Uh, but the number one movie that week was The Fly, but the Fly. and it was by a, a long shot. It was seven million. Armed and Dangerous is four million. Yeah. So yeah, like huge discrepancy there. Yeah. I mean, just speaking of fucked up movies, <laughs> God, um, seems like it's another world, another planet. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yes. But Final Box Office is only eight million. Okay. 
on the list of films that year it was the 78th highest grossing film that year. These these strangest fact I found there's this website called uh the numbers mm-hmm. which uh, and box office mojo does this too but they they put out the entire list of movies that year and what grossed what and 80 yeah 78 is manhunter 79 is crimes of the heart 80 is blue velvet those are all dino de Laurentiis films <laughs> man i didn't know blue velvet <laughs> did that poorly well blue velvet barely opened blue velvet only played on 180 screens oh really like jeez Blue Velvet made its money on video. Okay, yeah. You know, that's a that's an art house film that cost six million dollars to make. You know, mm-hmm. like that and that, that made money overseas more. Probably. They yeah. Were, you know. Yeah, but the three like Dino De Laurentiis, it's funny because the episode that will go up, I think, before this is about another movie that he produced called Trick or Treat. Mm-hmm. And this is a horror movie from the eighties. Mm-hmm. Also came out that year. <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis produced, I think, six movies that year, and all of them bombed. <laughs> Man, <laughs> mark of quality. Um, hey, he made yeah, he made good stuff too. Yeah, but I, know, I think I know, yeah. I know, but yeah, that's uh, uh I think it's uh, at a certain point he went from being uh, just like kind of a, a hands-on producer doing a number of projects to like branding his own name and just yeah, turning out a bunch of stuff, you know. And just buying rights to stuff. Right. Like he just like he owned Hannibal at one point. And like that's why Hannibal Rising exists. Because he told Thomas Harris, like, I'm gonna make a prequel to Hannibal. Oh really? <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, he told Thomas Harris, I'm gonna make a Hannibal or origin story and it can be based on a book by you or it can't. What do you want? That's, and that's, that's why Thomas Harris wrote that and that's why it's garbage. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Dino De Laurentiis is a weird guy. Like he remade, you know, he remade this movie. I think you know that that's purely a commercial endeavor. <laughs> like that's not a, uh, not a artistic one. He's like, we made Hannibal, we made Sons of the Lambs. Let's make another one with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, get some more money. Yeah, yeah. It's so weird so, that Anthony Hopkins just kind of signed signed on. He's like, yep, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> just, yeah. I mean, he he like I know you haven't seen Sons of the Lambs. He is great in that movie. I've seen but, clips of it. Like, trust me, like yeah. as a kid, it, like friends of mine would have it, and then they'd pull out clips to, you know, scare other kids and stuff. Um, yeah. But you know, no, I know he's he's fantastic. But yeah, like um, I don't know. I just think it's it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable that there's been so many of the kind of Hannibal Lecter movies that it's kind of become its own kind of franchise and stuff. I mean, it's pretty, and you know, like in X number of years, they're gonna reboot them and redo them again and. Because there was the, there's there's been two TV shows, mm-hmm. well, one Hannibal and one on Clarice. Clarice doesn't have Hannibal in it, right? Because uh, they don't have the rights to it. But yeah, it, it is he's become kind of an anti-hero, and I feel like Brian Cox's Hannibal would not be that character because Hannibal. It's weird because Hannibal, even Anthony Hopkins Hannibal, is not charming to me. He's terrifying. Okay, but. To because like you know he stand when when he when Clarice goes to meet him he's just standing in the middle of the cell, <laughs> like you know it's so ready to see you. You know it's so weird about like the cell in this movie, like yeah. Um, so a lot of the shots that they, I mean apparently it was very complicated to do the the filming inside that shell because Michael Mann wanted William Peterson's face between the bars at certain beats and it was just the block yeah. the blocking on it was really complicated apparently, but when you watch those sequences 
it's really hard to get an understanding of the geography of Lecter's cell because he has these books in there, but the books are kind yeah. of off to the left side, but you can't see them. And so it's just like, he has like a, you know, and it, and it's like supposed to be all open and stuff like that. So I just, I just remember like watching that and uh, it seemed like man with this movie and honestly with a lot of his movies, he's kind of prior kind of the the visual punch of it you know he wants to oh yeah all, all, all white cell so you're watching it and he's like he's hid he's hid them in his books in his cell and you're like where are his books you know, where's, you know where are they? I, I i think the look of that scene also like yes he is michael mann so it's style over substance to a certain extent right. but when you compare it to Silence of the Lambs, Silence of the Lambs, like i'm not a prison expert do they really keep people in literal dungeons no like, is it? That's a dungeon. But it's like, like it's brown and murky, right? But it's brown and murky. But it's literally a basement, and it's literally like in real life that would be dangerous to anyone's health. <laughs> so it's like it would you get? I mean, it's moldy and gross. It doesn't look like a prison. It looks like where you keep somebody in a castle. And this this cell is super clinical. And the lighting is super harsh uh-huh. and super bright, and everything's white. And to a certain extent, that's disorientating for the Peterson, but also like Hannibal has no place to hide. Right. In Silence of the Lambs, they actually there's a scene where he almost uses the the env- the 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 slot as a as a threat. Like he opens it and closes it so fast, and he's hiding in the shadow so you can't see him. You know, yeah. to make him more monstrous. There's nothing like that here. Hannibal's just a guy yeah. who enjoys they don't they don't even really say what he did they just say he killed a bunch of people yeah and i think a school of yeah. students or something like that they mentioned but the the thing that's so terrifying with the scene with him in this movie is that he gets a phone call and oh that scene's so and and it's like and i guess you could do this and he takes like kind of the the foil part of the the wrapper and he's able to like kind of hack into the phone and because he's yeah so, he's freaking yeah, well because he's so smooth and he's so charming and he's so smart. He's able to put in this kind of phony phone call and then get information about uh, uh, William Peterson character, William Peterson's character's wife and kind of the location. Yeah. And it's just one of those things when you watch it and it's like, this is utterly terrifying. And it's, and it's, yeah. and it's not him threatening to like eat him or, you know, talking about in great detail about uh you know murdering people or whatever it's something that a psychopath uh genius would do and he gets and i remember watching this and he's just the the person who answers the phone like gives him all the address and the phone number they just say it to him yeah and he just yeah he just memorizes it you know what i mean and he, yeah he doesn't need to write it down and it's like this guy's scary you know? yeah i i and there's a similar thing in Silence of the Lambs with Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill tricks a girl to get in his truck. Right. Just by acting like he has a broken arm. And that's scary stuff because it's A, it's realistic because I think Ted Bundy, but, did, Bundy that. did that. Yeah. And and two, like it just shows you how charismatic as like Buffalo Bill and the Tooth Fairy are like one step away from being like unable to function in society, right? But but Hannibal and then sometimes like in that scene with the broken with the fake broken arm. Uh-huh. They're smart. Oh yeah, and charismatic, they're sly and charming, and and, and and not what you think of when you think of oh, a sky keeps human liver and it's free for drink. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 
the critics was style of a substance. And in my opinion, mm-hmm. this movie, maybe when it came out, was too stylish or had a funny style to it. But now it almost works as a period piece of this is one type of the 80s. Like with the neon lighting. Yeah, I mean, the, ti- the, the, the title sequence is very 80s and kind of the, 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 the Yeah. The amazing ties they all wear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do, do you think it holds up that way? Like, like do you think this movie holds up now? Because it is so some people would just say it's dated as hell. I think it holds up really well. I mean, it moves along really, really nicely, and I think it's a you know it's a it's a great movie. It's a great movie worth watching now. I you know, I just go back to what I was saying before, is that I'm sorry. the the thing that uh like I really, really responded have responded to the first time that I saw it and then have continually responded to it, and then I respond to a lot of Michael Mann's movies, is that you know, just the way that they're lit, you know, and that when, oh, when yeah. he does dark, it's either completely black or it's blue, you know, and he doesn't, and he's not going to make things that are like brown or muted. Uh, no. All the colors are going to have sharp lines and it, or it's going to be completely all white. So I think that, you know, you have a movie about a serial killer and kind of the, the way to shoot that in the nineties would have been something like seven or where it's all kind of, yes. it's like rainy and, brown and yeah. dirty and whatever uh it's not that it's it's very clean um and i think that's the thing that makes it interesting it's 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 a movie you can mm. point and now it's like when they do those kind of movies they they like will often shoot them like it with like a green kind of tent to it or something like that yeah or like a yellow well they use that that bisexual lighting now <laughs> you know everything's blue and purple right yes yeah, yeah. like like per now it's like everything is lit with like purples and pinks and uh, synth wave, uh, yes. yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. So, um, I, I think that that's um, that's what makes it really, really interesting. The th- the thing that I kind of had forgotten about this movie is when I went back to, to see it is like the last the, the the end of the movie. It turns into like a peck and paw movie, like suddenly. Yeah, the yeah the shootout at the end. So, spoilers for everything. Spoilers for everything. Red Dragon now. So, uh, they changed the ending. They did from the book. So in the so here's here's a weird thing. So now I don't I like again Manhunter is a better movie than Red Dragon, right. but Red Dragon tells a more a more a st- more coherent story. Yeah. <laughs> um. So Dalahide kills that other guy, the 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 dude who he thinks Joan Allen is having sex with, okay. right? Now in the book and in the movie, that's he uses that corpse to fake his own death. Okay. So in the in the red in the Red Dragon remake and in the book, there's a shootout, there's a fire at the house. He pretends to kill himself with Joan Allen as a quote unquote witness, so he can't see him. <laughs> you know, right? But he says he's going to do it, and he kills, and he and he shoots, he blows the head off of the body, and then. In a scene that's in the book and I think is incredibly stupid, mm-hmm. Dalahide goes to William Peterson's house. He knows where he lives mm-hmm. because of the clipping that that, that Hannibal sent him. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's a payoff there. Right. But then there's a, a, a confrontation in the house, at, at in um, Graham's house at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's different. In in Manhunter, it's just a shootout in Rabbit Vida. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, I wonder if... so. Actually, I need to go back and read the book because I don't remember this, but if he fakes his own death by using 
another dead body, wouldn't like if you have these Cracker Jack forensic experts, wouldn't they look at that immediately and be like, uh, whoa, this is, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, this body died then, you know, at this time, wouldn't they know? I mean, in, in, in the book, it's a gas station attendant. And he blows his head off and burns it. Oh, okay, okay, there you go. So that's how they get. So like they get it's it. it's yeah. they can't even do dental records. Gotcha, yeah. Gotcha, so gotcha. and he has and in the movie he has the witness of somebody saying she heard him kill himself. Yeah, that seems a bit. So similar. and also again his head is blown off and it's a fire. Right. So yeah. Okay. They do cover it that well, and I think it is interesting because I think by when you remove that scene, it takes away the payoff of him knowing where William Graham lives. Yeah, there is a payoff in it in the movie, but it's it, yeah, it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of muted, and it's more kind of like yes. like kind of like oh god, they're going to get him, and then like oh, it, everything's okay, you know. So it's like yes, it doesn't. It's not it's not very satisfying, but you know what? It's because it's so unsatisfying. It's actually satisfying. Be, no, I think it's satisfying. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just because, like you know, you don't want something to happen to his wife and his kid. There's just too much. Yeah, exactly. Too much like bad stuff going on. So nothing really happens. And, you know, it's like, well, that's not much of a payoff. And it's like, well, actually, it's actually quite a nice payoff. So it, it, it may keep, well, I think the, keeps the movie from becoming sadistic, I think. because It keeps it from becoming sadistic. And I think the payoff isn't the style of the scene. Like yes. having the balls to, to set your scene to an unedited version of Inagata de Vida right. <laughs> is, that, that is... That's fucking... As, as somebody who really likes it when pop music is used in films right right yeah. um that is just it's brazen and it's kind of stupid but i love it and it's just it's very satisfying when he just fuck when he just shoots him like it's a good shootout in red it's a good shootout. it's a shootout yeah, no, yeah. It's a, but it's a, like a just for, with regards to because sometimes with a lot of the shootouts from the 80s that i remember as a kid thinking were exciting you go back and watch them and then within kind of the grant, if you know, you watch a bunch of shootouts and you kind of hold woo and and peck and pop is like this is kind of these are kind of the masters of doing shootouts. And in that comparison, some of them may not seem that exciting, but this this one still looks quite nice and you know it's still very exciting. So I think it's a, a it is a good shootout. And they did some weird stuff with it. They changed the frame rates. Oh yeah, I mean, but that's like all kind of like peck and pop. It just it seems like that you know using different speeds and frame rates and cameras yeah. and all this different stuff i mean that's all kind of uh uh kind of it seems like in the peck and paul school of uh doing a shootout of blood said yes but you're gonna go from your favorite director to my favorite director because my favorite director is sam peck and Paul because i hate people <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah. i did a whole episode on bring me the head of Alfredo garcia uh-huh. uh with, with alex navarro and we we talk in links about the the misanthropy of Peck and Paw. I don't think Michael Mann does not have that mean streak that Peck and Paw. No, has. So, no, no, like no. I mean, like um, you know, uh, it, it's like uh, when when what the Wild Bunch came out, people were shocked that they couldn't believe that William Holden was saying things that he was saying. I mean, just yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there's a. Uh, uh, there, there's an edge to both of them, but like I always feel like that with Peckinpah, 
there's kind of like a, a hopeless edge, you know what I mean, to his mo- yeah, movies. Yeah. Michael Mann is like going to like Ferrari dealerships and stuff. He's not an unhappy. Oh guy. man, he's not an unhappy guy. <laughs> so, no, he's not. So. No, no. And we gotta we gotta wrap up soon because we're talking about Michael Mann so much. I don't know what to talk about Heat. Okay. And uh, like no, but so because I would just I would if we talk about Michael Mann, I just want to keep talking about lots of Mohicans and then talking about Heat. And I'll never finish this this uh, podcast because. I could talk about heat all goddamn day. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it's great. Oh, that that movie's. That movie's so great. But anyway, uh, anything else you want to add about this film? About Manhunter? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, uh, from from what you said, I mean, I, I, obviously, I can't can't speak to experience about this, but if you've seen uh, the other Lecter movies, um, this obviously should would be, I think, a f- fast make a fascinating viewing just for a comparison. Even if you don't, even if you don't like those movies, even if you've never seen them, but if you're interested in crime movies, uh, if you liked Heat, if you like Miami Vice, um, if you like William Peterson, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely worth checking out. It's, uh, I think it's, it ho- holds up quite well and uh, is, a, is a very interesting picture. Yeah, I think it's kind of prescient, as we said earlier, in like not just the entire like TV crime genre. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, I mean, it, like, it literally invented a like, subgenre of television and yeah. movies. CSI and NCIS would not exist without this show. Did you know there was an episode of CSI with uh, Tom Noonan? Oh, really? I really hope he played the killer. I really, I don't know <laughs> if he did or not. <laughs> but, but, well, if he was like, you know, the nice Xander in high school, who knows? I don't know. But, I was yeah, I think this. I always felt like when C- I always felt like when CSI came out that somewhere Michael Mann was in like a a production office in Hollywood, going like, "Damn it!" Because <laughs> <laughs> he tried to make one more TV show, uh, that uh, murder homicide show. I think what was the name of that show? Uh, Robbery Homicide Division, and that was in two thousand two, mm-hmm. and that had who was in that? Tom. That's yeah. <laughs> Tom Sizemore. Um, oh. oh no, that TV show was terrible. I watched the pilot because I was missing from Michael Mann. I'm like, fuck yeah, Michael Mann, and I watched it, and I'm like, no. <laughs> but size so Sizemore is kind of like a like you know Sizemore. I, I think it's kind of what you think is like kind of a Michael Mann kind of actor. You know what I mean? Like, well, he's also a mess. Oh, he's a complete like, mess. You know. He's a complete. <laughs> I interv- yes. I I didn't interview him, but I was on an interview call with him in mm. in the late nineties. Oh, uh, I'd be terrified. Yeah, no, it was I'm a super nice guy, super nice, super. Uh, let's let me put it this way: he was super nice and he was super honest about kind of the difficulties that he's had in his life. And I had a lot of respect. Yeah. And I had a lot of respect for that. He's just he has had a lot of difficulties, but I mean, just a fantastic. You can tell he's like a very sensitive person because he's obviously able to connect with these characters in uh, uh, such a deep w- way. But like, he, he seems to me like one, like he's kind of like, like in the same way that Farina is kind of a good Michael Mann actor. But Yeah. Yeah. Did you see what Michael Mann's next project is? Yes. Tokyo Vice. Yes. Are you excited for that one? I am. I mean, I know Jake, so uh, I'm excited and happy for, J- Oh, okay. I'm excited and happy for Jake. That's, you know, obviously an amazing experience when your book is turned into a TV show by Michael Mann. Um, That's pretty incredible. So um, yeah. And it seems like they've assembled a good cast of people. And yeah. uh, So hopefully, I mean, there's, as you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, 
potential pitfalls of doing stuff about Japan. Uh, yeah. um, but uh, hopefully they have a lot of kind of uh, behind the scenes experts and Japanese yeah. people involved to prevent them from happening. I mean, even when I go back and watch like uh, Black Rain now, there's a lot of stuff in that's like horribly dated. But there's a lot of stuff in that movie that's really good, you know, and so I haven't seen that. I have to watch that. Yeah, there's a, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in it where it's like, oh, OK, this is, you know, America's view of Japan in the 1980s. Got it. And there's a lot of stuff that's kind of <laughs> corny and goofy. But then there's a lot of stuff you're like, wow, that's just like really slick or that's really well done. And they really kind of hit all these high notes really well. So, well. I hope Michael Mann can t- make a movie out of a book about Japanese whiskey, maybe. Ha! And then, uh, that would be great. Call you. <laughs> yes. And then he can do one about Japanese record stores and he can call me. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think and Michael Mann, what I'm saying is we're available. Anyway, I think we'll wrap it up. Yes, always available. Uh, <laughs> yes. Brian, thanks a lot for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? Uh, I'm usually on Twitter. I'm at brian underscore ashcraft find me there and i'm also on kotaku if you like uh video games and that sort of stuff i'm there as well but just i like video games there you go <laughs> i'll go yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow that looks out great <laughs> you can follow me on twitter at lost turntable uh my website losttuntable.com and i am back on youtube after my youtube battles uh that's also at lost turntable where i make videos about record stores and old weird electronics and records i find here in japan but That'll do it today for another episode of Cinema Olivia. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Take care.